0: Welcome to 30 Brave Minutes, a podcast of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. In 30 Brave Minutes, we'll give you something interesting to think about. I'm Richard Gay, Dean of the college, and with me are Associate Deans Joanna Hersey and Ashley Allen. Today, we're gonna to be talking about the JFK assassinations. These are Dr. Josiah Marino, Associate Professor in Political Science and Public Administration, and Dr. James Hudson, Assistant Professor in History. Now get ready for 30 Brave Minutes. Thank you so much for joining us today, guys. Thank Thank you for having uh, us. Thank you. We really appreciate it. I understand it's 60 years ago that the JFK assassination took place. Could you take a minute and tell us about some of the main actors involved in this?
1: I guess I'll start um, in terms of President Kennedy himself. He came from a very wealthy and politically active family. His maternal grandfather, John Fitzgerald, he was named after was mayor of Boston early in the 20th century. All four of his grandparents were descended from Irish immigrants. He had several siblings, but his oldest brother, Joseph Jr., was actually killed in World War II during a top-secret aerial reconnaissance mission. His father, Joseph Kennedy, uh, was a prominent businessman and philanthropist, and he had political aspirations for all his children. And then John could have been 4F because of various health problems he had even before the war, but he really wanted to serve in the war and used his father's uh, connections to get a commission in the Navy. Early in his naval career, he had an affair with a Danish-American journalist, Inga Arvad, who many believe was a German spy. So even early in his mm-hmm. career, there's some uh, interesting connections going on. Kennedy was a crewman on a PT boat, and in August 1943, his PT-109 collided with a Japanese destroyer near the Solomon Islands, and he received a Navy Marine Corps Medal for Heroism and rescuing his shipmates. After the war, he served in the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate. In 1953, he married Jacqueline Bouvier, with whom he had four children. While he was a senator, he published Profiles in Courage, which won the Pulitzer Prize. It may have been ghostwritten by his speechwriter. that
2: be Ted Soroson?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was the youngest president at the time of his inauguration at 43. He was the first Irish-American, first Catholic president. He campaigned on this really, I think, Very optimistic program, I think, targeted at a younger generation of voters called the New Frontier Campaign. It was, uh, as an example for for the U.S., uh, I think his youth and optimism won people over.
3: Mm.
0: Well, what was his presidency like? So his presidency is
2: memorable for a number of reasons. The most obvious reason is how it ends. One of the reasons why Kennedy is such a fixture in the American political imagination is because of this, the way he was assassinated. But the beginning of his presidency was suffused with a lot of hope. So as, as uh, James was just saying, his campaign theme was this notion of new frontiers. So this is 1959, 1960. The US has just gone through a decade of very high economic growth. And so there was a real sense of prosperity and hope for the future and his campaign for a lot of people was seen as kind of really capturing that because he was so young he was Youngest president, as was just said, he was 43 by the time he was inaugurated. So he was a youthful president, had a very kind of, you know, good-looking wife. He he looked very healthy. Now we know in retrospect he had some very serious health problems, but he seemed to really capture this hope for the country that the United States was getting into. So his presidency only lasts a little over a thousand days. It's interesting. Political scientists have a little bit more of a skeptical view of it in some ways than the popular uh, imagination, popular memory. But some of the highlights was he got the country through a period of intense negotiation with the Soviet Union. This is the the Cuban Missile Crisis, where he almost goes to war against the Soviets because of the presence of nuclear weapons in communist-controlled Cuba. So that was the closest the United States has ever gotten to an actual nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. It's the closest ever since until recent memory.
0: So his presidency is sometimes look at as a golden age, and that's why it's referred to as Camelot. It was okay.
2: referred to as that. So the people that he brought into office with him were seen as some of the brightest and hardest working meritocrats. So uh, Robert McNamara becomes the secretary of defense. Robert McNamara worked for General Motors, and he really kind of revolutionized the way cars were produced. And the thought was these new, smart, young, successful people were gonna go into government and kind of carry on that same success. So this idea of the, of the White House and the government being like a citadel of competence and something that you can trust is really part of the Kennedy
1: legacy.
3: So tell us now about Lee Harvey Oswald. Sure.
1: So in every contrast to Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald grew up with a troubled childhood. His father died of a heart attack soon after he was born. He spent time as a kid living in Fort Worth, Texas, New York, and New Orleans. By the age of 12, he was in juvenile detention and labeled as emotionally disturbed. He may have had a learning disability, but he was apparently a voracious reader and developed an avid interest in Marxist and socialist literature as early as the age of 15, apparently. At age 17, he joined the Marine Corps, where he also had difficulty with authority. He was court-martialed twice, sent to the brig. He was trained as a radar operator. So there's three classifications of marksmanship in the Marine Corps, and I know this because I served in the Marine Corps myself. Expert, sharpshooter, and marksman. Oswald was not an expert. He was a a sharpshooter and then qualified as a marksman, the lowest one, what we call a pizza box. I was a pizza box myself. Um, I
2: think I was a sharpshooter. And
1: the, uh, <laughs> so. well, the Marine Corps rifle range is very rigorous. And the rifles that Oswald trained with, most likely the M1 or perhaps even the M14, were auto-loading rifles. The weapon that Oswald used in, in the assassination was a bolt-action rifle that he had to mm-hmm. rechamber around every time it was fired. And so this raises a question of... If, in fact, he had the skills to fire three quick shots in succession using a bolt action rifle on a moving target 265 feet away, it would have taken Oswald or an expert shot at least 2.3 seconds to reload his weapon between firing three shots. And this doesn't exactly line up with the timing of the shots, so it's highly debated. After Oswald served in the Marines, he defected to the Soviet Union in October 1959, where he met and married Marina Prusikova, with whom he had two children. While in the Soviet Union, Oswald attempted to renounce his American citizenship. He worked at a factory in Minsk as a lathe operator at an electronics factory. Uh, His standard of living in in Minsk was was quite higher than the average worker there. He was under constant surveillance. Some of the former KGB agents that were charged with observing him in the uh, Frontline documentary, who was Lee Harvey, Harvey Oswald interviewed for that, and said he was pretty unremarkable. Uh, as a subject of surveillance not very interesting. We're thinking of any conspiracy with the Soviets mm-hmm. the Oswald's returned to the US in 1962 and we're, we're getting closer to the date of the shooting and settled in Dallas Fort Worth when the Oswald's returned to the US they were met at the airport by his brother Robert who's also interviewed in the frontline piece and said that Oswald was really surprised not to see any media or press. There to greet him because wow. he had lived this, you know, life as a semi-celebrity, you know, rare Russian woman. But nobody was there. Uh, and Oswald was disappointed by that. In April 1963, Oswald attempted to assassinate former Major General Edwin Walker at his residence, but failed to hit him. Walker was a known anti-communist, segregationist, and member of the John Birch Society. In late September, Oswald traveled to Mexico City, where he met with officials from the Cuban embassy and expressed his wish to visit Cuba and return to the Soviet Union.
3: Interesting stuff. Thank you. So so I just wanted to say it sounds like he's an ideal villain in this story. <sighs> he's, he's kind of
2: – it's when I read about Lee Harvey Oswald, what comes to mind to me is someone who we would never have heard about Right. Except for the fact that he assassinated a president. Sure. Now, he did have a knack for kind of showing up in places and making himself known. But he would just be not even a footnote in history, aside from the fact that he he perpetrated this terrible crime. But he was unique for having defected in the 50s and 60s. It was not very common for people from the West to go to the Soviet Union. And this kind of gets to some of this conspiracy theory things that, uh, that James is referring to. So that if someone from the United States goes to the Soviet Union and tries to renounce their citizenship, that person is gonna be on the radar of U.S. intelligence services, especially if the person tries to come back. And so there's lots of speculation about whether he was like a false defector, quote unquote. Like maybe he was sent by the CIA to go to the Soviet Union and then return. That kind of thing is alleged to have happened. But my read of Lee Harvey Oswald is he was actually a very unstable person. He could not hold on a job. He was very erratic in his personal behavior. This is the last kind of person that a government is going to rely upon mm-hmm. to yeah. carry out something sensitive like an assassination of a, of a rival country's uh, leadership.
1: Yeah, that's my assessment of him as well. He's, I think, very much wanted to be the center of attention. Exactly. But he, he didn't really.
2: He seemed to have a, an inferiority complex yeah. or he yeah. thought that he was going to get back at the system for not giving him the recognition that he deserved sure. or this kind of, again, this kind of inferiority complex.
3: Can we go over the basic facts of the day?
2: Right. So um, Kennedy, this is in 63. He's up for reelection in, in the next year. And Texas was one of the key states that Kennedy would need to win in order to get reelected as president. What was happening in Texas at the time, so, of course, his vice president at the time is a man, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who is from Texas. He was a Texas senator for 12 years. And he was going to Texas to try to shore up some kind of dispute that was taking place between the Texas Democratic Party leadership. So he arrives on the 21st. He does a few tours in San Antonio and in Houston. Then he flies into Dallas on the morning of the 22nd. And he's going to Dallas to attend a luncheon at something called the Trade Mart. He arrives and he's kind of known by the Secret Service as being a little bit too forward, like he wants to mix with the public. So he's supposed to drive from Love Field to the Trademark. It's about a 10-mile drive, and they were going to go through downtown Dallas. The route they were going to take had actually been published in a Dallas newspaper in the days prior to the, his arrival, so it was known where he was going to be. He ends up driving through downtown Dallas, and then they divert through something called Dealey Plaza, which is this last plaza before you get to the interstate to head to the trademark. He drives through uh, Dealey Plaza. There is a building called the Texas School Book Depository. And then within a few seconds of arriving in Dealey Plaza and driving through, shots begin to ring out. The first shot, and there's a little bit of dispute on the ordering of the shots, but the first shot is thought to have just missed completely and maybe hit some debris. One of the Uh, viewers of the parade had some very minor wounds from like grass or rocks hitting and getting, getting scraped. And then two shots hit the vehicle in which Kennedy was traveling. The first shot goes through Kennedy's neck. You can see this occur on something called the Zapruder film, which is probably the most viewed film in history. It's about a minute long and it captures on film the assassination of JFK. You can see the first shot where Kennedy slumps forward. His arms start to rise because of the reaction to the shot going through his neck. And that shot seems to have gotten through him and hit the person in front of him, the Texas governor, John Connolly. John Connolly, it, it kind of ricochets through his body. He probably would have survived that first shot had that been the only shot that hit him. The second shot hits him in the upper rear right part of his skull and that's what kills president kennedy it it literally causes his his skull to explode and you can capture this in kind of graphic detail on the zapruder film if you take the time to watch it this happens very quickly it's a matter of seconds as james was just explaining the secret service don't know what's happening the tragedy is his car was uncovered it was uncovered because there was a light rain that friday morning but by the time the parade had started Uh, The rain had stopped. It was a beautiful day. So the car was uncovered. After Kennedy is shot, they go to Parkland Memorial Hospital. And within the essentially the doctors knew he was not going to survive the the uh, injury. But by 1 p.m., he was declared officially deceased by the, the doctors at the hospital.
3: Okay, so what made JFK's assassination so uniquely devastating for many Americans at that time?
1: i think the fact that he was so young and killed in such a violent way i think was really shocking and tragic for a lot of people it was covered on television and who i mean hasn't seen that walter cronkite's address to the nation and and walter cronkite breaking down cronkite was like the father of the news you know and even he lost his composure over it you know even oswald's assassination by jack ruby was on television so it was it was a televised media covered event and I think that's what was unique about it. It was the first of a series of major assassinations in the 1960s, Malcolm X in 1965, and then MLK and RFK in 1968. Kennedy was the fourth president assassinated, the most recent to have died in office. And it was a defining moment for anyone alive at that time. Everyone remembers where they were and what they were doing, like Pearl Harbor. The journalist Dan Rather is quoted as saying that the assassination will be talked about a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, and in somewhat the same way as people discuss the Iliad. Different people read Homer's description of the war and come to different conclusions, and so it shall be for Kennedy's death. In addition to these assassinations, this is a time when the U.S. was becoming increasingly involved in Vietnam, which started in Kennedy's administration, and then you know, his successor, President Johnson, escalated as well as various inner city conflicts, the anti-war movement, student protests, civil rights, and things like that.
0: Encourage you to consider making a tax deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at millionth.com. Thanks again for listening. Now back to Mayor Thurman. Was there any speculation that if he had only lived, Vietnam wouldn't have happened?
2: there's a lot of counterfactual thoughts about that and obviously we won't know but we also forget how many US troops were actually in Vietnam when Kennedy was assassinated they weren't no they weren't considered combat troops they were considered advisors but there were thousands tens of thousands i think there was around 13,000 US troops in Vietnam by the time he was assassinated in 63 so now of course whether he would have escalated the same way that Johnson did we, we'll, we'll never know but Again, this is one thing that political scientists tend to come down a little harder on, that his decision to escalate in Vietnam was not a given. His role in the removal of the Vietnamese president, a man named uh, Go Dinh Diem, was another kind of thing the U.S. does that escalates our involvement in the country. So we won't know, but he, he was pretty involved in Vietnam much more than the public was aware at that time.
0: Thank you for that. Let's go back to the assassination itself. What happened in the weeks and days after the, the event took place?
2: Well, the, the first thing is we didn't have a president. And I think we assume nowadays that it's always obvious that the vice president assumes the role of the presidency. It's actually not. It's well, At least it wasn't at the time. It wasn't nearly as clear. So, But especially after FDR dies in office in 45 and then Truman succeeds him. So the question of who becomes president, what, that was still relatively clear. And then the question of when. So, OK, if Johnson, who's the vice president, is going to become president, when is that going to happen? Should he do it in Dallas? Because he's in Dallas. He was in the car behind Kennedy when Kennedy was killed. Does he get inaugurated or get sworn in in Dallas or does he wait to come back to Washington, D.C.? In other words, should Kennedy return to D.C. still as president, at least in a symbolic sense? For various reasons that were controversial for the Kennedy family, Johnson decides to be sworn in in Dallas. So he's sworn in at 2:38 p.m. on that Friday afternoon. A federal judge in the Dallas area is asked to come swear him in, and she and she and she does so on Air Force One. And there's an iconic photograph of Johnson taking the oath of office, standing next to Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy, wearing the same outfit she was wearing uh, when the president was shot, and actually still having some of the blood and the debris on her outfit from that uh, from that shooting. So it's a very iconic, very sad photo because she's obviously just stricken by with grief and shock of what's just taken place. So we need a new president. He gets sworn in. And then the question of what to do with uh, Kennedy's remains, there is an autopsy that night uh, the, to determine the exact cause of death and to determine the facts of the angles of the shots and whatnot. This becomes another sticky point for some of the conspiracy theories. There's a thought that the autopsy was was rushed and that the people who performed it were not sufficiently qualified for the most important homicide of that of that year. So there is some details about that. And then the funeral on November 25th, where you have 1,200 people, uh, attending the funeral from over ninety countries at Saint Matthew's Cathedral in Washington D.C., and then another iconic moment of JFK Jr. saluting his father's casket as it passes on the way to Arlington National Cemetery, where Kennedy was laid to rest. Nowadays, there's an, uh, uh, an eternal flame that's burning over his over his uh, casket. It was that was put in place in sixty seven, but that funeral and that. Photo in particular, again, is one of those lingering memories that we have of the of his funeral.
0: Absolutely, and I just think of the courage it took for all of the parties um, in the aftermath to be able to continue to function because clearly everyone was in shock. And could you imagine taking the oath, oath of office uh, immediately after witnessing something like that well, or, and, or being the spouse? And, and
2: for Johnson, this becomes a real problem because his— cabinet members are all Kennedy people. They were not Johnson people. And there was a big cultural distinction between the two. So it makes it difficult for Johnson to run, in, to function in office for this first few years.
3: Let's come back to Jack Ruby because you brought him up before. Who was he and what was that piece of the story?
1: Jack Ruby was a Dallas nightclub owner who had possible connections to the mob and the Chicago outfit, this Chicago mob organization and it led many to believe that he was part of an assassination plot to kill the president and his assassin after the shooting took place. Ruby was the part owner and operator of a a nightclub called the Carousel Lounge (laughs) in Dallas. Two days after the assassination, in the morning of November 24th, Dallas police were escorting Oswald in the police basement, and Ruby appeared and fired one shot into Oswald's abdomen at point-blank range, mortally wounding Oswald. Uh, And the fact that Oswald's detention was managed by the Dallas Police Department and not the Secret Service or the federal government was due to the fact that killing a sitting president was actually not considered a federal crime at this time, um, which is unfortunate. By the time John Hinckley attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan in 1981, this had changed because Hinckley was tried by the federal government. Um, And an interesting story for my life is that my father, on New Year's 1963, went with a friend of his named Jim Young to the Carousel Lounge, and they met Jack Ruby. Wow. Um, wow. And they were these young kids from, you know, the middle of nowhere, small-town Texas, and apparently were getting harassed by some, some locals, and this guy comes out and tells him to leave the kids alone, and he ended up being very friendly to my dad and his friend and took him up to the roof of the place, showed him the Dallas skyline, and dad always talked about how he had these dachshunds with him, and that's been verified. He, he had these dogs... And that, that story loomed large in my family. And then the following fall, when the shooting happened, my dad was playing football at Texas Tech, and he played in one of the only few college football games that was played that following Saturday. Um,
3: yeah, just as an aside, Dr. Vela had been at the carousel uh, literally the day before in Sal wow. Jack Ruby there, which was pretty interesting. The day
2: before he shot Lee Harvey Oswald or the day before the assassination? The day before
3: the assassination. Interesting. That's interesting. And I think it reminds us, when we listen today, it strikes us as so strange, the l- lack of security. This, this is mm-hmm. such a normal part of our lives now, especially those of us that work with public leaders in any way. And, and the fact that these two people could be shot in this way, I think, is maybe surprising to some of our younger listeners. That, that you know, We used to be able to take bottles of wine onto airplanes. Right. Was, <laughs> the world has changed a lot in that regard. Is that something that strikes you And when you teach about this and, and discuss it?
2: I don't use this specific example. I do tell my students how I used to be able to walk to the gate of the airport to, like, (laughs) escort my grandparents when they were flying home. So these kinds of events really do reshape American society in a way that reverberates down future generations to, to the extent that we often kind of take for granted the changes that result from these events.
1: Just the violence involved in that event, I think, reveals a lot about some of the core problems that have haunted our society since then. The availability of guns. Just in 2011, another member of our government, Gab- Gabrielle Gippards, was shot right. in the head at a, at a public event. So guns and guns-related violence, I think, are unfortunate fact of life in uh, American society. And, and I think the assassination of our president in 1963 is but one of many tragic examples of that.
0: And you guys have already given several examples of how we've sort of grown up after this, right? Like, we now have processes for who becomes president and probably win now. Mm -hmm. So you guys have alluded to things that we just didn't know how to address at the time because we'd never had to do it before. I think it goes back to that idea of the golden age too, right? Because thinking of it as this sort of charmed, again, Camelot image, uh, it just creates such a shock for all of us. And and here we are 60 years later reliving it, right, and talking Absolutely. about our colleagues who were, you know, there or family members who met some of the protagonists in the aftermath. So let's talk a little bit about the Warren Commission. So um, what did they do?
1: Um, so the Warren Commission was established by President Johnson, headed by Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, oral Warren, to investigate the assassination It was a 10-month-long investigation, and it resulted in an 800-page report delivered in September of 1964. It concluded that Oswald and Ruby acted alone. It concluded that a single book struck Kennedy and Connolly, though some have found this conclusion improbable. Our magic bullet theory, it left a highly controversial legacy. Um, And then there's this new book that just came out, uh, The Final Witness by Paul Landis, one of the Kennedy Secret Service agents that was feet away when the event happened, saw the president shot, and Landis claims that he discovered another bullet near Kennedy's body, behind where he was seated in the limo, and then he took it when they arrived at Parkland Hospital and placed it on Kennedy's gurney. Where did this bullet come from? Why was it behind the president and not in front of him if the shots were coming from behind him? And so this further calls into the question the lone gunman theory. Maybe there was another shooter. Coming in from another direction. Right. right.
0: Yeah, that, I think that that's a book that many of us will be looking into in the future to, to check it out. So we've been talking a little bit about how this was such a momentous event in American history. So talk about how it reshaped American politics.
2: Well, it was really a
0: turning point
2: in American politics. If you look at measures of trust in the government in the early 60s, late 50s, trust in government was around 75%, so pretty high 70s or mid-range 70s. And if you look at what's happened since then, it's with a couple short periods of exception, it's, it's just gone down. So nowadays, trust in government is around 16%. So it's very different from where things were in 1960. There are a lot of reasons for that, but Kennedy's assassination is one of those turning points in history where you start seeing trust go down, and the reason for that gets to what James was just saying about some of the concerns about the Warren Commission. And there was a, a strong belief for a lot of people that Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone and that somehow other governments were colluding in that. Maybe it was the Cubans, maybe it was the Soviets, or perhaps maybe there were rogue elements of our own government that were collaborating with Lee Harvey Oswald, maybe even encouraging him or at the very least helping to cover up any kind of information that could have detracted from the official narrative as presented by the Warren Commission. You also have other things that you know, James was just referring to that kind of uh, that helped to catalyze this this shift in attitudes towards the government. You have the, the war in Vietnam, this idea that the government is not being truthful with its citizens. Um, you have uh, other assassinations like Martin Luther King Jr., Robert Kennedy getting killed in 1968. And it leads to this trend of people thinking the government is not really on their side. And again, there's a lot of reasons for that, but Kennedy's assassination and the belief that there was a cover-up, the belief that Lee Harvey Oswald was not acting alone is one of those main factors.
0: Fascinating. Uh, keep thinking about, uh, don't look at the man behind the curtain. Right, right exactly. Wizard
2: of Oz, yeah. And well, the the man behind the curtain, that it might be in this case, people talk about this grassy knoll. Mm-hmm. And there is a single photograph of the moment... When the first bullet struck Kennedy and he slumped over, he's about to be struck by the second bullet. And some people claim that there is an individual. It's a black and white photograph. It's, it's a little blurry, but people claim that there is a so-called badge man that's standing off in the distance that you can see in the photograph, at least they claim to see. And people suggest that this is the the supposed second gunman mm-hmm. that um, that shot Kennedy. Never been proved, but there's been a lot of writing, and a lot of speculation about it.
1: Yeah, and, and just the conspiratorial element. Um, you know, there was the 1991 film JFK with Kevin Costner, which is, like, I think really overblown in terms of conspiracy theory. But one thing that that movie did do was that shortly after Congress passed the uh, JFK Records Act, which required the National Archives to release all materials relevant to the assassination within 25 years, But and only last summer in July 2023 has... 99% of all documents pertaining to the assassination have been released.
0: That 1% could say a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's
2: where, that's where all the details are hidden. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I remember visiting Dealey Plaza as a boy. You know, I grew up in Texas, and it was at night, and I don't think it really changed a lot. In 1993, the site was designated by the National Park Service as a historical landmark, and on the sixth floor of the school book depository is a, is a great museum the Sixth Floor Museum, um, which I have also visited. And it's a first-rate museum that covers every aspect of the assassination. Dealey Plaza is a really interesting part of Dallas because it probably would have been completely changed or bulldozed had not the assassination taken place there. So it's kind of a hollowed ground. Many tourists visit there every year.
3: What are some things that your students say when you're looking at these historical things? How does it look like to them?
1: Well, for me, I mean, I study Chinese history and regardless of where or when you're studying, I mean, violence is always a part of the equation. And what, I, what I've just tried to tell my students even recently with things that have been going on in the world. Violence is never the way to solve conflict. Never.
2: The way I think about it is, and we've touched on this before, that for that people of that generation, everyone who was alive in, in November 22nd, 1963, they know where they were when they heard about the Kennedy assassination. It's a defining moment. I was not alive then. For me, the corollary is 9-11. I was a freshman in college. I remember coming down the stairs, this is in Alaska, and I saw the TV on with the Twin Towers, which had not yet collapsed. So there are events that happen in our lifetimes that have become sort of defining events. Uh, for students nowadays, when I ask them this question, they often will say COVID-19, and how that is gonna be something that's reshaped their lives in a way. Of course, that's, that's a much longer period of time, obviously, than a single event like 9-11 or the assassination. but. COVID-19 is one of those events that, again, it's going to reshape people's lives. It's changing how they think about government, how they think about society. And that's, that's what I say for students. This event was like that. They, people knew where they were, and it forever reshaped that generation and how it saw its relationship to government. And again, and we're still living in the aftermath of that event
3: and that's the value for our students in learning the different histories is really seeing that connection between the generations and how we view our society. Exactly.
2: Exactly. It shows that things change and not always for the better. Uh, they right. can change for the worse and of course they can also we, we can overcome the challenges that result from previous events.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. I feel like I've personally learned a lot, so thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, you're both great storytellers. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Scott.
1: Thank you. It's a
2: pleasure. I appreciate the conversation.
3: This podcast was edited and transcribed by Joanna Hersey, and our theme music was composed by Riley Morton.
0: This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only, and it is not to be changed or to used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own, and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release. Neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and Go Braves!